This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day. And I am Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Except for members of that terrorist organization known as the police. <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to, Stephanie. <laughs> Aren't you in Denmark or something? <laughs> yeah. If you can believe it, this is this is how crazy, this is how the rest of the world feels about what's happening in America right now. My mother-in-law, who is a member of the Danish Conservative Party, and this is, you know, uh, conservatives, you know, she is pretty conservative for a Dane. She told me today that she was ready to get, to put boots on the ground and throw brick through the window in America <laughs> over what's happening right now. Um, so, you know, there's really no doubt in anyone's mind, no matter mm-hmm. where you are in the political spectrum in Denmark, how how to feel about, you know, the police brutality in the United States. That's a big brick, the collective window of America. <laughs> yeah, and I've, you know, this last week, I've really been thinking about how I, I suspect that racial bias and institutional racism in the healthcare system probably kills more people than our criminal justice system. Um, and it's something that we need to turn like an equal lens on, but it's it's tough because you're never going to have like that video of like someone being treated differently in a hospital room, you know? Um, so it's hard to generate the same urgency, but I've been thinking about the same, uh, I think it does have the same urgency as a a social issue. So maybe that'll be our next podcast, Stephanie. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. But for this one, what are we going to do? Right. So I am, again, um, you know, as I mentioned on the last podcast, I'm in Denmark right now uh, helping my father-in-law, who is Danish, uh, transition into a long-term care facility. Uh, On that podcast, we talked to a Danish expert on the long-term care system here, um, and it was such an interesting conversation, and we didn't really get to contrast that much, you know, with how the U.S. long-term health care system works. Uh, So this week, we're revisiting the topic of long-term care, uh, but we're just examining the U.S. system. All right, I'm ready. And we have a guest also, who is Linda Benish, who is the Communications Director at Social Security Works. Thanks for joining us, Linda. Thank you so much for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about just who you are, what Social Security Works does? Sure. So I'm Communications Director at Social Security Works, which is a national nonprofit. We're focused on protecting and expanding Social Security, but also economic security more broadly. And we take our inspiration from President Franklin Roosevelt, who created Social Security and called for security for all the men, women, and children of this nation against all the hazards and vicissitudes of life. So that's the vision that we're fighting to achieve at Social Security Works, and that very much includes high-quality, long-term care for everyone in America. I miss those days when you could say vicissitudes in public, and no one would look at you funny. (laughs) Linda's going to bring it back. That's right. All right. Challenge for the day. Introduce vicissitudes sometime in this podcast. (laughs) So... um, 
Linda, in the U.S. context, since we now want to kind of switch from looking at Denmark to what we have here, uh, what exactly is long-term care mean and what does it cover? So long-term care, it's what's needed when people require assistance in their day-to-day life, either permanently or at least for a significant amount of time. And in many cases, when we think about long-term care, we think about an older person, but almost half of people in the U.S. who require long-term care are people with disabilities under the age of 65, and the disability community has really been at the forefront of uh, activism around long-term care, so that's important um, to establish right off the bat. Now, um, the the majority of long-term care in the United States is actually provided in the home by family members, usually women, and the vast majority of the time uncompensated, but that depends on each individual situation. If there's not a family member who's willing or able to provide care, or if the care required is beyond the level of what the family members can handle, then the system is a patchwork of options, and none of them are very good. Some people hire caregivers to come into their homes, but these uh, people, it's usually somehow very expensive to hire a caregiver, but then at the same time, the caregivers themselves are poorly paid, and that's usually because there's a third for-profit company in the middle taking a lot of the wages. Um, Others move to assisted living facilities, which are communities for people who can't live independently, but also don't need round-the-clock care. And then for people who need frequent care, nursing homes, which are institutional settings where there are nurses and medical equipment on site, is the most common option. Yeah, so there's so much I want to touch on there, uh, Linda, but I was just really struck by um, your description of caretaking as being mostly done unpaid and by women, and what a contrast that was to what we heard last week from Denmark. Um, They have moved mostly uh, assisted living and home help into the formal formal sector, which means that people get paid to do it. Uh, And I think that that's a huge win, especially for women who are typically expected to do that, expected to leave their jobs early uh, and lose wages uh, to take care of aging family members at home. So it sounds like nursing home care is is really, and and all sorts of um, long-term care is actually quite expensive. Um, Can you give us a sense of like how much it would be and what would happen to you if you couldn't pay for it? Yes, so long-term care in the United States, it's extremely expensive. Nursing homes average $100,000 annually. That means this is really a 99% versus the 1% issue. The vast majority of Americans, um, even if they were middle class during their working years, cannot afford long-term care, which means that if they should need it, they have to turn, um, well, not to Medicare, which is the program that covers uh, people over 65 for health insurance in the U.S. and that you would think would cover long-term care, but instead to Medicaid, which is the program for low-income Americans. And since it's covered through Medicaid, people are required to um, spend down most of their assets before they can have Medicaid. And in practice, what that means is you have to sell your home, sell your car, um, just get rid of everything that you've spent your whole life working for simply because you need long-term care, which is not something that anyone can control. Yeah, and some of our the worst horror stories we hear from our members in the Medicare for All movement actually relate to long-term care. I remember um, the state of New York was doing a series of hearings um, about the Medicare for All bill, and they did them all over uh, the state of New York. This is uh, a bunch of years back. And I was at a hearing, I think it was in Buffalo or Rochester, 
Um, and there was a police detective whose job was to investigate non-homicide deaths. Uh, a lot of them are suicides. And he talked about how many suicides were actually people who needed long-term care, were you know, permanently disabled, but they didn't want to bankrupt their family. So in some cases, they owned like a family farm or something. And they would take their own lives just to spare the finances of their family, which is just one of the most horrifying things I've heard of. And to hear from a, a detective that it's actually a common thing such that it becomes part of his job is just shocking to me. Um, so just the fact that this is what gets inflicted on people at the time when they most need to be cared for is is just unbelievable. But. That's horrifying. And I wish I could say that that surprises me, but mm -hmm. unfortunately it doesn't. I actually... Um, volunteered in high school i'm at a nursing home for a summer which this would have been 15 years ago now so i'm afraid the situation may have only gotten worse since then but i remember very much like how people would just have to wait for hours to see you know a nurse or even a staff member and that, like they expressed you know like to me as a teenager this was really shocking that, that like they would rather be dead because this oh. existence in many oh. cases is just so miserable Wow. And, you know, last last week uh, or on the last podcast, uh, Stephanie looked up this this research from um, or a recommendation from Fidelity that for your retirement planning, you should be saving somewhere between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand dollars just for medical care and long term care if you want to retire at the age of sixty five. But it sounds like if nursing home care costs one hundred thousand dollars a year, that might not even be enough. And that to me seems like an un totally unachievable savings goal unless you're already fairly wealthy yes so i'm familiar with the study and in fact it does not include long-term care oh my God. like those numbers are just for healthcare costs in the u.s if you're over 65 for things besides that so that's co-pays and deductibles for medicare it's prescription drug costs it's the dentist um but yeah and so just the fact that you have to have all this money even for health care outside of long-term care shows just how unattainable unless you're a multimillionaire or billionaire it is to pay for long-term care out of pocket wow so um let's i'm curious now about why all of this costs so much um and you talked you touched a little bit on your in, in your intro about these for-profit middlemen can you tell us a little bit about like how much of the long-term care system is run by for-profit entities and what the implications are for us Yes, so 70% um, of nursing homes are for-profit. They're often run by investment uh, firms, including private equity firms, which are these entities that are basically just vultures. They exist to acquire things and then strip them for whatever profit that they can. They don't create any value or anything useful of their own. Um, but the thing is, Medicaid reimbursement rates for nursing homes are actually quite low, so they have to find quote-unquote creative ways to make a profit. This usually comes at patients' expense. And one of the worst ways that they do it is by cutting back the number of staff and by paying the staff poverty levels, which requires people to work in multiple nursing homes just to make a living. And that's just one of the features of the long-term care system and the U.S. healthcare system in general that's so perverse that the uh, people providing care are making very low wages, and yet the people receiving care have to pay these unattainable costs. Almost makes you wonder where all that money goes to. <laughs> it does. 
I would love to hear more about how um, an institutional bias affects uh, people who aren't seniors but are, you know, uh, have disabilities and need some sort of assisted living help. Yes. Um, so Medicaid, um, as we discussed, is the main um, provider for long-term care in the U.S., but it's also a program that's run. Um, there's really 50 Medicaids. There's not one Medicaid because it's run by the states. And in most states, Medicaid has little or no coverage of either assisting the assisted living facilities or of at-home care provided by either a caregiver or a family member. And so that means that Medicaid is basically a funnel driving people into nursing homes, despite the fact that nursing homes are both the most expensive option and the one that people um, want to be in the least, right? Most seniors want to stay in their homes. Most people with disabilities very much want to stay in their homes. And part of the reason why the disability community has been at the forefront is that if you're a disabled, say, like 40-year-old, right, like you could be looking at decades of living in a nursing home when you could be living a much more fulfilling life in your community. And that's my understanding, uh, tell me if this is right, is that the reason that this bias towards nursing homes exists is because the federal government requires states to cover nursing home care, right? But they don't require all the other things. Is that how it works? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. that, and so like the federal government can set some broad overarching standards for the Medicaid program, but they give states a huge amount of leeway, which means that a lot of the states, they're just really extraordinarily bare bones in what they cover. Right. And I'm assuming there's a big gap between states. Like, I mean, obviously in Medicare, Medicaid coverage in general, um, in general, the more liberal uh, states, more Democratic run states tend to have more expansive Medicaid programs. And I think also some of them have moved towards trying to facilitate more home based care. Um, but the states who are just trying to slash and burn their Medicaid budgets, essentially, and spend as little as possible, those are probably the ones that are the most forcing people into nursing homes, but also have these, you know, it's almost impossible to qualify for Medicaid if you have any income whatsoever. Yeah, in general, yes. I mean, I certainly don't want to give Democratic governors too much credit. <laughs> I mean, you were Good just point. talking about New York, where Cuomo mm -hmm. is ramming through Medicaid cuts in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but it is certainly true that in the red states, Medicaid programs are usually just terribly bare bones. And in Democratic states, they'll maybe be slightly less bare bones. Mm -hmm. But all inadequate. Yeah. Yes. So, so far, uh, over 40,000 nursing home residents and workers have uh, died of coronavirus. Um, and, and now that we're talking about, you know, the institutional bias and there being so many people in nursing homes and just thinking about how hard it must be to, social, um, to socially distance in a nursing home, um, do you feel like the structure of America's long-term care system makes seniors more vulnerable to pandemics? Yes, very much. So, I mean, we have seen that Around the world, coronavirus is a bigger issue in nursing homes and similar facilities, but I still firmly believe that a lot of the nursing home deaths in the U.S. are preventable ones. They're caused by our broken for-profit healthcare system. As I mentioned, um, the staff are underpaid. They usually have to work in multiple facilities just to make ends meet, and so that makes it really easy for the virus to transmit um, from one nursing home to another. And then these corporations that earn, own the nursing homes, they're not focused right now on protecting patients' lives. They're focused on protecting themselves from lawsuits. And I've already um, several states, both the uh, red and blue states, 16, have um, passed legislation um, or mandates from the governors to protect the nursing home industry from lawsuits. 
And then Mitch McConnell is trying to do it right now at the federal level. Um, if there is another big coronavirus package, that's his big demand is immunity from lawsuits for corporations, including nursing homes that um, even if their negligent um, actions cause people to die from the virus, right? McConnell, he's not like, okay, how do we get more um, needed equipment to these facilities? How do we require them to follow higher standards? How do we get them more tests? He's saying, how do we get these corporations legal immunity? Maybe I should have left him out of the podcast. Go America. <laughs> you got out just in time, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so since we are, you know, our focus has been on the Medicare for All movement, and I think there has been, um, you know, I've I've been a full-time staff in this movement for, for about 15 years, and it feels like the Medicare for All movement has more and more embraced uh, the need to include long-term care in a universal health care system. Um, I think it's there's been a lot of um, improvement in the language in the legislation, uh, both in Congress, but also the state level bills are starting to be more long term care conscious. Um, so can you tell us, especially the Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for all bill in the House? I mean, what would it do for long term care coverage if it was passed? Yeah, so that the Jayapal bill, without question, it's the strongest Medicare for all bill on long term care that we've seen in the U.S., um, and it would make two big changes. First of all, it would uh, cover all long-term care just through taxpayer dollars free at the point of service, just like it's done in many other countries. And so people would no longer have to give up everything that they've worked hard for all their lives just um, because they need long-term care. Nobody would have to spend for it. And then the other big change is that it would um, end the institutional bias that we were discussing. It would incentivize... Um, everyone to go first into their homes, right, to have care um, provided in their homes and not to have to go into facilities, which is not something that almost anybody wants. Yeah, that's something Professor Quist's last uh, last podcast was talking about, that, you know, once Denmark had a long-term care, universal long-term care system, they actually had a huge incentive to let people stay in their homes because it's cheaper to, to pay for it that way. And the government obviously wants to save money. Um, but it's one of those uh, magical uh, intersections of cost savings and like better quality of life for the people who, who need the services as well. And we it seems like we don't have that incentive. So we end up spending more and getting less, which is just like our healthcare system, actually. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like you can say everything that's broken about the American healthcare system is just magnified in the long term care system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so besides the Medicare for all bills, there are some proposals that are floating around Congress to deal with um, long term care. So Representative Richard Neal, uh, chairman, very powerful congressperson, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, um, is actively trying to outsource long term care to for profit insurance companies. That's the way he feels like he wants to fix <laughs> the long term care crisis. Um, and when I say actively, I mean that he has actually asked the National Association of Insurance Commissioners to consider the feasibility of including long-term coverage in private Medigap supplemental insurance. Um, how do you feel about that proposal in contrast to financing everything through Medicare for All? Yeah, well, first of all, the only reason that an insurance company would even want to do this, because there are existing private um, long-term care insurance plans in the U.S., but they're very expensive and they're hard to qualify for. You usually need to do a health screening first. 
Um, and the only way they would want to do it is if they were allowed to basically take people's money and then not provide them the care that they need, because otherwise it's not profitable for them. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you're Richard Neal, right, he's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign uh, contributions from insurance and healthcare companies. So his priorities reflect that. He's not looking to actually be able to help people who need long-term care. He's looking to give his donors another product that they can make money off of. Is this where you're saying we shouldn't give Democrats too much credit? <laughs> uh, Depends which Democrats, right? Right, that's true. Giant a Democrat too, but not that one. Yeah, and what, I mean, what percentage of people actually do have private long-term care insurance? I don't think I know anyone in any area of my life who gets this through their job or who pays for, pays for it on their own. Um, I mean, how common or uncommon is that? I, I mean, you may not have data at the tip of your fingertips, but a, a, just a general sense. Yeah, I believe it's around 7% at most. Um, mm. That might even be too high, but yeah, I don't know anyone either. I know people, even in my own family, who've looked into purchasing long-term right. care insurance, and um, they it's found totally either that it's too expensive or just that um, because, like most Americans, they have a pre-existing condition um, mm. that they can't qualify for it. Right. Yeah, to go back to uh, last week, uh, Professor Christ pointed out that in Denmark, long-term care actually accounts for 3% of their GDP. So it's highly, it's hugely expensive for them um, to provide. Uh, and it's a huge part of the healthcare system overall. Um, and when you think about how much uh, money it requires to provide long-term care for people. And then you think about the United States where so few people are actually getting, you know, government help for it. And most people are paying out of their pocket or most people are maybe having uh, uncompensated uh, care from family members. There's just like this huge part of the economy that's just so essential. Um, I mean, you're, you know, oftentimes end of life care uh, that we're just allowing people to pay for if they can or not, you know, it's, seems like a huge oversight in terms of like a public service. Right. It's a question of what are your nation's values? What percentage of GDP do we spend on the military versus long-term yeah. care? And that is an important point to keep in mind when discussing long-term care is that making things less expensive is not in and of itself a good goal, right? Like if something costs money, but it helps people get what they need, a fulfilling life, good care then that's okay. So the reason to end the institutional bias is not primarily because nursing homes are more expensive, but it's because most people don't want to be in them. They want to be in their homes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, we, at least during the, the Democratic primaries, when there was a contested Democratic primary this year, uh, Medicare for All is one of the top issues. And I think we heard one of the rationalizations that Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and some of the other centrist candidates would provide for opposing Medicare for All was that it would, you know, do away with our current private health care system, which now seems ridiculous because everyone's lost their jobs during coronavirus and the, that whole system doesn't work for you uh, in this, this crisis moment that's just happened during the primaries. But uh, it seems like there is no real private protection system for long-term care. Um, I mean, what rationalization does anyone give on, you know, uh, on the Hill for not expanding long-term care, especially community-based long-term care? Yeah, I think it's something that's just not discussed more often than it's rationalized, right? Like people like it to be out of sight, out of mind. Even with these coronavirus deaths in nursing homes, they're not all over cable news because 
there aren't cameras, right, in the nursing homes. And so people don't see it, right? They just look at it as a problem for other people. Um, but in terms of Joe Biden, I mean, realistically, is he going to come out for Medicare for all? He certainly should, but probably not. But he should certainly. And if anyone who's on you know, some of those committees working groups happens to be listening, should be coming out with a very robust long-term care proposal. He's uh, getting a lot of support right now from older women. Older women think a lot about this, whether they're in the role of the caregiver or the person who eventually needs care. And so this is something he should be coming out for. He should be talking a lot about um, because it's what his base is looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I only wish the Democratic Party was responsive to its base, its core base more often. I mean, we would have probably some some criminal justice reform at this point, if that were the case as well. Linda, we forgot to ask you at the beginning, uh, how did you get involved, you know, with activism, with social security, long-term care? Yeah, so I um, first uh, interned um, towards the end of my time in college for a, another group working on these issues called the Alliance for Retired Americans. And that's made up of union retirees. So I had a chance there to work with some great people um, talk to people and learn about. At that time, there was a lot of talk about cutting Social Security as well. So I would hear from all these retirees just how low Social Security benefits are. They average only um, less than $20,000 a year, right, about what they were going through. Um, and this was just something I really became passionate about. And then not long after that, actually, I started working for Social Security Works. So I'm coming on, I think, seven years now. It's a really wonderful team to work with. So um, yeah, but I feel very lucky to be able to do the work that I do every day and to fight to just change its country, right? So that we run on the values of care rather than profit. Mm -hmm. well, I'm glad you did. Um, and this is probably the moment where we should tell people, um, if you were turning 55 or in, into your 60s, please do not join AARP. <laughs> Join the ARA, which is an awesome organization. Um, the ARP, which is, well, I don't know. Can you t give us like the lowdown on, I mean, they have obviously some conflicts of interest when it comes to healthcare corporations and have been a destructive force for around Medicare for all, even when they should be fighting for seniors who would benefit more, probably more than anyone from a Medicare for all policy. Yeah, so the ARP, that's the largest seniors organization in the United States, but they really are in terms of their political force, as you said, they have their own financial incentives. They sell these things called Medigap plans, which are um, to cover the services that Medicare doesn't. So they do financially benefit from how inadequate the current system is. And now, to be fair, like they do some decent work, um, especially on drug pricing, as long as it doesn't hurt their bottom line. But they just try to be very non-controversial. They never want to take a stand. And so it's kind of a waste, right? to have this huge power of, hundred, of uh, millions, hundreds, um, tens of millions of seniors behind you and just not to do a lot with it. Yeah, I think they have all these corporate partnerships with healthcare companies that, t and most of their income comes from those partnerships, not from their members. Um, I know in particular, they've partnered with United Health, the largest for-profit insurance company. So they exclusively sell you United Health Medicare supplemental plans. Um, and that obviously, you know, they would lose that money if we switched to a Medicare for all program. So it's like everyone has like a little finger in the pie of healthcare and long-term care income. 
and it compromises so many of our what should be our natural allies, which is frustrating. <laughs> Linda, I feel like we could just, you know, there's so much to talk about with long-term care. Is there anything, you know, anything major that we really missed that you want to make sure we convey today? No, I think you covered everything really well, but just this pandemic, right? Like it's a watershed moment for our country. And I really think all these deaths in nursing homes, like they're, it's really, really tragic. We need to get that in front of people's faces. Um, But this could be, you know, I really hold out hope, right? the moment um, that sparks change, right? That all of this tragedy, we're going to grow from those ashes and we are going to build a system that runs on the values of care. Absolutely, and as you were talking actually about, you know, these for-profit companies that are running these nursing homes, I mean, not only is the nursing home model one where, you know, coronavirus already, you know, can have an in and can run rampant, but if you have an entity that's, um, sort of watching out for its bottom line over patient care, then you're going to have corners cut all over the place. And it makes so much sense that, you know, not every nurse is washing her hands before going to the next patient, the next patient every single time. And how many um, forces there are in our healthcare system to have made what happened in nursing homes so far as bad as it has been. Um, and it's just really, it's just really sobering to think about. Yes, and I would never like blame the nurses or the other workers because they're almost always just doing the best that they can and exactly. this really, really difficult system. Yep. Yeah. It's probably the same as in, in hospitals where, you know, overstaffing uh, or understaffing is just rampant. Um, even before coronavirus, um, you know, it was obviously in the, ho- in the interest of a lot of these, ho- especially the for-profit hospitals, to have uh, far fewer nurses caring for far more patients. Um, and that was before, you know, the shit really hit the fan with this influx of uh, intensive, you know, intensive care needs. Um, so I, I think we're on it, you know, healthcare now, obviously we're primarily an advocacy group. Social Security Works is like one of our best allies nationally in this movement. So um, we will definitely carry it on from here and be fighting. And I, I agree with you that I think, especially when the dust settles a little bit on coronavirus, that there's going to be an accounting for on all these issues. So, Yes, no, absolutely. I really think that a better future is possible. Stephanie, it's just heartwarming and so inspiring to hear about Denmark because it shows that there is a better way to do things, right? And it's just a question of overcoming the entrenched forces. Um, but it's there, right? We just have to keep up the fight. Yeah, exactly. Unlike global warming, where we're all in this totally unprecedented situation and how are we going to decarbonize our economies together and everything. I mean, Medicare for all, There's we already have a path. Other countries have been doing it for 40 years here in Denmark, over 40 years, actually. So, I mean, yeah, it's exactly like what you're saying. It's We already have a path. We don't have to start from scratch. So Yes, and I'm so proud to be fighting alongside both of you in healthcare now. Oh. All right. Well, we will talk to you all uh, next week on the podcast. Take care, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. Bye.